as you know, we're going to be going through heaven, and it's going to take us seven weeks to go through heaven. Today will be mostly an introduction. The seventh week will be spending time on the interim state that we have, that after we die, then what happens, what we're going to be talking about mostly for a while is the eternal state, okay? But there's an awful lot of thought and erroneous teaching that goes into play when I die and then after the the new heavens and the new earth are created. And we will deal with that, but we will deal with that a little bit later. But it will come. And then the last week, we have to spend a week on the eternal state of those who are lost. And that is hell. Um, it's every bit as important to understand that as it is to understand heaven. About, I don't know when it was, six years ago or so, I came home and Connie was not in a good state. She says, would you come put some more covers on me? And she's always hot, but she was freezing cold. Put more covers on me, put more co- I'm hot, I, I'm cold, I'm cold, I'm cold. And this was about, I don't know, 9.30 in, in the evening. And uh, just shivering, and I said, we need to go to the hospital. No, let's wait till morning and we'll, we'll, we'll be all right. Well, it just got worse and worse, and finally about 11 o'clock, I said, we're going in. So we went into the hospital, and she had, her, her gallbladder had ruptured, and she had this little S word called sepsis. And the doctor the next day, he came in and he told her, lady, you don't know how close you came. She said, if you'd have waited another, what, six, eight hours, you might not have made it. And they took her in for surgery, and it was supposed to be like an hour surgery. It lasted like three. Anyway, I went home and was walking our dog to have him do his duties. And I had presented this heaven thing a few years before that. And the thought came to my mind, and it wasn't planned, knowing how close she came, you know, that God preserved her and all that, but the thought came, it would have been okay. Why did that thought come? I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had gone through this heaven series And I had a better understanding of what that is. That it is ultimately good. Unfortunately, we live in a society, however, that is very, very much attuned to instant gratification. We don't like, and this is me too, We don't like to wait for anything, including red lights. (laughs) Turn. Fast food is a way of life. 
Long lines? Oh, don't even go there. <laughs> and more recently, we get frustrated when Amazon takes more than two days to deliver something we ordered. Amen. Why in the world is it taking them so long? Streaming videos, streaming movies, they're everywhere, are taken over. Why? We don't want to wait. We've got to have it now. You know, an indicator of this is the escalation of individual debt. People don't want to wait to get what they want. We simply pull out a card and pay for it later. I heard a comedian one time talking about going into 7-Eleven ordering a, a Slurpee and a hot dog and put it in our card so you can make payments on it. Um, we don't want to defer the gratification regardless of the long-term cost. Now, some of you will not remember this, but some will. I remember growing up and going into a store. It was Falk's ID downtown with my mother to make a payment on an item that was on layaway. All right? Try to explain that process to your kids or grandkids. What's layaway? You know, but sadly, many Christians are as well way too focused on living in the moment with little or no eternal eternal perspective. It's attitudes like these that fuel the prosperity gospel movement. Joel Osteen's book, It's Not Your Best Life Later, It's Your Best Life Now because we got to have everything now. It sold more than 8 million copies last I looked. So it's not just like three people are buying it. It's just one example of that mindset. C.S. Lewis, who died in 1963, wrote over 60 years ago, quote, Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. This keeps us away from focusing on our eternal destiny. We spend very little time studying what the Bible teaches about heaven. Why? Because it's somewhere in the future. It's something that's not urgent yet. Heaven is more, in many people's minds, a life insurance policy to be collected later. It's the future somewhere, and I'll deal with that future at that time. And it's a totally messed up perspective. When you think about it, fixing our minds on this world is extremely short-sighted. Our lives are woefully short. My mother lived to be 93. And I've had people say to me something like this, and you've all heard it. Well, she lived a good long life. Really? Compared to what? The lifespan of a dog or a cat? Yeah, it was a long life. Ecclesiastes 6.12 says this, and it poignantly points it out. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? 
which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So what is worth investing our lives in for the brief span of years that we get to live on this earth? For the Christian, everything that's precious is in heaven, not here on earth. The hope of heaven should fill our hearts, drive our perspective, fill us with the joy of anticipation that loosens us from the love of this world's attractions. Colossians 3, 1-4 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. MacArthur said this, We need to learn to live in the light of heaven. That hope should fill our hearts, should change our lives, filling us with the joy of anticipation that loosens us from this passing world. We can get so tied down to this world, he says, we consume things in this world that will perish instead of laying up treasure in heaven. So we're going to take a few weeks to learn what we can about this hope that should fill our hearts, should change our lives, should fill us with the joy of anticipation that loosens us from this passing world. For believers, we need to learn more about our eternal destiny, our home, our future. And I don't have it written down in my notes, but a very interesting quote that Charles Spurgeon had. He said, soon, every one of us are going to know about heaven and the greatest Christian theologian alive. Because we're going to be there. Now, our society has a weird view of heaven, and most of it, 99% of it, is totally wrong. There's an online poll with the question, what do you think heaven is like? And the options are, you know, clouds, golden gates, the works. 14% said, yeah, that's it. Another 21% said this. Everyone has a personal heaven. It's a place where you get eternal happiness. 46% said somewhere where you're with all the good people that have passed away. 44% said all of the above, all three of those. 9% said, I don't know. They're probably more more accurate, more honest. And 7% said, I don't believe in heaven. One responder said this, I thought that it was going to be the golden gates and pearl something, and I was raised in the church basically, so that was the stuff I was taught to believe. Which, 
any church teaches that, you need to do some serious thinking. He said, but I don't know what I believe anymore. Sadly, many are like the cynical Mark Twain. When he was told about heaven, he remarked flippantly, he said, you take heaven, I'd rather go to Bermuda. According to a Barnes research poll, most people get their beliefs from a myriad of sources. Television? Oh yeah, you know, the television shows are really accurate. Right? Whoa, whoa, what, what was that show that Michael Landon was? It was some kind of angel or something, right? What's that? Highway to Heaven. Yeah. Oh yeah, boom. Some people get them from movies. Well, that's accurate. A lot of people get them from jokes or conversation with friends. And all of these sources are way, way, way off base. A minister, and it's not just the lay people, a minister once told Randy Alcorn, quote, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. That was a minister. If you have a minister like that, get rid of him. John Eldridge wrote in his book, Nearly every Christian I have spoken to has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. Wow. Teaching about heaven has not been a priority in the church. I own a 900-page book on the doctrines of the Bible. 900 pages. Less than two pages are devoted to heaven. In a 7,300-page systematic theology effort that I do not own, 7,300 pages, less than one page deals with heaven. So how in the world are we going to be taught about heaven? Oh, but there's a ton of stuff out there about people who claim to have been there. And come back to tell us about it. And every year there are more and more and more added to that list. Couple examples. Heaven is for real. A little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back, written by Todd Burpo in 2010. It sold over 10 million copies by 2014. And a movie was made about the book. There's this other book. The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Alice Malarkey in 2010. I didn't make that name up, guys. It was Malarkey. It sold over a million copies. This is the funny thing about the guy's name. It's now been pulled after Alex admitted that writing the story was made up. And he never went there. The book was a commercial success and it was adopted into a television film in March 2010 
But later he said, uh, uh, oh, I didn't go there. <laughs> There's 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper, 2004. That book sold over 6 million copies. A feature-length movie was made from this book in 2015. I went to it with Justin Peters. We sat side by side and watched it. It was as malarkey as malarkey story. There's another one called Heaven is So Real by Chu Thomas in 2003. And beginning in 1996, Thomas says that she visited heaven numerous times with Jesus. When asked if her heavenly experiences were visions or dreams, she said, quote, I know I've seen heaven, and I know that heaven is so real. Whether we place my experiences in the category of supernatural dreams, visions, or actual experience, I will leave that to the theologians. All I can say is that they were very real to me. Well, she had a vivid imagination, but she did not go to heaven. Then we have our favorite pink-haired lady, Kat Kerr. She's written two books, Revealing Heaven and Revealing Heaven 2, plus numerous interviews with another heretic named Steve Schultz. She's the one that says Jesus rides around on a Harley and, and John Wayne is there making Western movies, but there's no bad guys in the movies. And that Christopher Reeves, the guy that played Superman, is teaching people how to fly because he did it so good while he was on Earth. Um, craziness. Insanity. But people buy it. Jesse Duplantis, a very popular guy, he wrote Close Encounters of the God Kind. And he says that he went to heaven and God asked him for his opinion on what to do with this certain person. Then, then the last one I'm going to mention, because we could go on forever, is Kim Robinson. She wrote a book, Heaven is Real and Fun. About the book, she said, Since 1988, the Holy Spirit has been taking me to heaven. Jesus would show me various fun places and allowed me to do fun things. I asked, Why is he showing me these places? Daddy slash God said, because people think all they do here is float around wearing diapers, eating grapes, and doing nothing but bowing before me. And you can go play with Jesus in the river. You can play in the snow. You can ride a roller coaster. You can come slide down a treehouse slide with Jesus. That's what she says heaven is all about. And these are not isolated claims. I googled stories about visits to heaven two weeks ago. On May 22nd, 2023, I hit 8,320,000,000 hits. Everything from New Age accounts to a book written by Mark Twain to all that junk we just saw. Needless to say, there is a ton of misinformation about heaven being absorbed and believed by a lot of people. So where should we go to learn about heaven so we can live in the light of heaven? For sure, we need to steer clear of the abundance of books and claims of people who say they have gone there. And interestingly, and not surprisingly at all, 
these people who have gone to heaven have vastly different experiences to what they call heaven, and they're, they, they're mutually exclusive. You know, they're wildly inconsistent. Why? Because they're not, come from, they're not coming from God. None of them line up with Scripture, which gets us to our best and only source, and that is Scripture. And that's where we're going to go. And there is enough there that we can get a good understanding. We're not going to know everything. We're not going to know everything. But we're going to know enough of what heaven is and heaven is not. So let's get started. I know it's a long introduction, but 2 Corinthians 2.9 says this, But at, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God does not leave us completely in the dark about heaven. And while we can't fathom it, there are some things that we are told about it. Heaven is our eternal home, if you're a believer. Heaven is your eternal home. And I trust that as we get to know it, it will thrill you. It will thrill all of us as we get to look at the few glimpses of heaven that God has given us in Scripture. What it's like, what our relationships will be like, what we will do there, all those types of things will be covered. The first thing is heaven is a place. It is a physical location. The, we will be physically alive in a physical location. A physical resurrection awaits the believer. And that resurrection will set us free from the curse of sin and of death. Some people try to spiritualize heaven or allegorize it taking away its physical existence. Some people, those people think that heaven is a presence or a nirvana or a state of mind. It's not. Go to 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7, all the way through chapter 5, verse 10. Now, we're not going to read all those verses, but you'll get the idea. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power of God belongs to us. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, and you don't have to look around very far, you look in the mirror, you can see that, right? That's happening. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, pre pre preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, 
We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavenlies. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For while we walk by faith, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So a momentary light affliction that we endure for the cause of Christ is simply producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's not a bad trade-off. Paul wrote in verse 18, We look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's giving us the eternal perspective that we need to have. We all know, this is no surprise to anybody, that our earthly tent or our earthly body is in the process of being torn down. Frequently, I don't know about you, but I do this. Frequently, I look at older people and try to imagine what they were physically like in their prime. You know? The older I get, the more I do that. It would kind of be neat to see. Someone asked John Quincy Adams one time, who was the sixth president who lived in 1767 to 1848, how he was. And John Quincy's answer was interesting. He said, John Quincy Adams is very well, sir, very well. The house in which he has been living is dilapidated and old, and he has received word from its maker that he must vacate soon. But John Quincy Adams is very well. Pretty well stated. Our outer man is decaying. Our earthly tent is being torn down. And when it is gone, we know we will have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Verse, chapter 5, verse 2 says that in uh, 2 Corinthians, says that we groan in our current house longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We groan because of our physical struggles. We groan because of the sin that reigns in our flesh. We groan because we cannot be what we ought to be. And we don't do what we ought to do. We're debilitated continuously in this human form. And not only us, but all of creation groans as well, waiting for the eternal conclusion of God, longing to be clothed with the dwelling from heaven. And we see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 21 to 23. It says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
So creation's under this as well. Is our hope and our focus on the things of this life? Do we want to be clothed with the best fashion? Fanciest new car? Live in a great house? Have a huge balance in our bank account? Enjoy great vacations? Various pleasures? So that these things soak up our time and our energy and our desires. And as a result, eternity takes a back seat. When one takes a look at today's Christians, there are way too few, way too few. And I've got to look at the mirror when I'm saying this. Who have a longing to be in the presence of God in heaven as opposed to bettering their, quote, jar of clay or their personal tent. Chapter 5, verse 4, gives us the reason why we are to be anxious, to be clothed with our eternal body. It says, for we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Burdened by what? Sin, its effects, sickness, death, tears, sorrows, heartache, sadness, pain, fear, Doubt, trials, temptations, loss, defeat, probably miss some. You can go on and on. Verse, verse 4 goes on to say, For while we are in, still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We do not want to be unclothed, nor is it not, or it, it's not enough just for us to have our spirits go into the presence of God. We desire our bodies to go into the presence of God as well. We want to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So here we are, longing to be in this eternal place. And then verse 5 presents us with a great hope. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as his guarantee. Now God gives us the Spirit, his Spirit as his pledge. In Ephesians 1.14, in Ephesians 1.14, says the Spirit is called the guarantee of our inheritance. He has an earnest, or in the Greek word it's erebon, which means it's similar to an engagement ring. The, refer, the, the word also refers to money given as a pledge of the full amount that will be paid. God gives each believer his Holy Spirit as the down payment, the engagement ring, the first installment of our eternal life. Now, as a side note, this is a demonstration of the, of the security of a believer, how you cannot lose your salvation. Once that's made, the down payment or the first installment is now the property of the person who was given that. So if a sale doesn't go through on a house that you gave a down payment on, you lose that down payment. Would God give away his spirit and lose it? No. That's impossible because the Holy Spirit is God. 
With that fact stated, as far as the Spirit being our inheritance, 1 Corinthians goes on in verse 6. So always we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Pretty straightforward statement. For the Christian, the deepest desire of our heart is to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And that's, I mean, we we might know that intellectually, but that's hard for many to say. We can hold tightly to this life. The love, the joy, the meaningful relationships, and other things that bring us all that we have experienced, it's easy to become captive to that. So we need a clearer understanding of what awaits us, which can help loosen that grip in terms of us holding so tightly to this life. Imagine being able to say and mean, I prefer to be at home with the Lord. Everything we love is there. Our Father, our Savior, our brothers and sisters, believers. Our inheritance is there. Our citizenship is there. Our treasure is there. We're going to find out more what those treasures are. It's there. It's not here. This is the kind of hard attitude we need. We need to get to the point where we are more concerned about the eternal weight of glory than anything this life can offer. So what about this physical place called heaven? In the Old Testament, we have the word that's translated heaven, shamayin, which means the heights. The New Testament, we have Uranus, which is where we get the name for the planet Uranus. Okay? It means raised up. In both cases, it's a general term that means something that is high. To get a little more detail, we can go to 2 Corinthians 12, 2, where Paul says that he was caught up to the third heaven. So what's he referring to? First, the first heaven is the atmosphere, the sky that is above the earth. That is the, you know, you call it in science class, the troposphere. The lowest region of the atmosphere, it's about four to six miles from the Earth's surface. That's the troposphere. Sometimes when the Bible passages refer to the third heaven, it's always very clear. One is Isaiah 55, 9, where it says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As for the rain and snow that come down from heaven. This is talking about the troposphere, the first heaven. Psalm 147.8 says, He covers the earth with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. It is clear that these passages are referring to the troposphere, the first heaven. The second heaven 
is the area that's populated by the stars, the moons, the planets, and the galaxies. Again, it's clear when the Bible is talking about this heaven. As an example, Genesis 1.1. God said, let there be lights in the expanse. Not 1.1, 1, 1, 1, uh, 2, I think. I don't have them. Didn't write it down. Let there be lights in the expanse of heavens. Let there be lights in the expanse of heavens. Two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of heavens and gave light on the earth. That's the second heaven. That's the stars, everything. That's where we send out um, what the Hubble telescope and stuff like that so we can see that stuff. Then there's the third heaven. And this is what we're going to focus on in our study. This is where God dwells with his angels. And this is where all the saints of the angels, uh, saints of the ages who have been redeemed will also dwell with God and with our Savior, Jesus Christ. A couple of verses that mention this heaven are Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. God's not dwelling out there in space somewhere. Okay, this is the third heaven. Isaiah 63, 15 says, Look down from heaven and see from thy holy and glorious habitation. This is from where God dwells, where God lives. Other references that mention this third heaven are Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.34, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. You all know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. This is where he dwells. In Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus taught that heaven was the dwelling place of God. It's not a figment of the imagination. It's an actual place. Now heaven is so much tied into God's place that heaven became a synonym for God in many places in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 22, He who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So that's a synonym for God. <coughs> so whenever the scripture teaches the kingdom of heaven is referring to the kingdom of God. Now, during the time between the Old and the New Testament, the Jewish people developed a tendency never to use the name of God. They thought it was too holy to say. And to this end, they began substituting other words for the name of God. And one of the words they substituted for God was heaven. They would, instead of saying, I worship God, they would say, I worship 
heaven. Instead of saying, calling upon the name of God, they will call upon the name of heaven. In the Jewish culture, the New Testament, uh, the Jewish culture of the New Testament, any reference to the kingdom of heaven is simply a reference to the kingdom of God. So if you see that, that's what it's talking about. This is where God dwells. Now, Isaiah gives us a little picture of God exalted on his throne, surrounded by his angels. If we go to Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That's quite a picture. Now, you also notice there's, there's angels there. Above him stood the seraphim. Now, that the angels are in heaven is also recorded in passages like Matthew 22 and Luke 15. Now, one perhaps seemingly unrelated item is found in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Ephesians 1 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And then going to chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, we're not in heaven. But we are blessed within the heavenlies. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. When we become saved, we enter into the kingdom of God, under God's kingdom, but not yet in heaven, but in the heavenlies. Well, what is heaven like? We'll find more, but it's a new order of fellowship, of harmony with God and Christ. Among other things, it's a place of joy, of peace, of holiness of love, of fulfillment. It's a far cry from the unnamed quote-unquote pastor we quoted from earlier who, quote, couldn't stand the thought of endless tedium because we tend to float around on clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. No, joy, peace, holiness, love, fulfillment. Back to the joy, peace, holiness, love, We experience that in a small 
small, small, small sense in this life. The Holy Spirit, God's guarantee to us, produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. All of these will be characteristics of heaven, only in perfect form. As we live in Christ, we experience them in a very, very limited way because we are in the heavenlies in Christ. The words of the song, you might know, kind of come to mind and they're correct. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And what's the next line? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We just get a little, just a little crumb. Because we're going to have those in complete, complete fulfillment. John MacArthur said, quote, The best of our spiritual experiences in this life is a taste of what will be commonplace in heaven. On the spiritual plane, our highest highs, profoundest depths, and greatest blessings will be the commonest things of heaven. Actually, I read that and I said, you know, John, I know you meant well, but you grossly understated it. You grossly, I don't know if you have language to state it properly. So it's not a, I'm not criticizing him. I don't know how you do that. I mean, he's trying to say this, it's going to be beyond, going to be beyond any of that. I don't think anyone has the ability to accurately describe the vast difference between the joys we have now in the Holy Spirit as Christians and what we will experience in heaven. But it does give us a faint idea. But these things do give us a very tiny glimpse of the glories of life to come as we now live in the heavenlies. We have the pledge of the Holy Spirit. We have the life of God within us and the rule of God over us. We have come into a new kind of community, a new kind of fellowship, a new kind of a family. We have come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are no longer under the dominion of Satan, but under the dominion of God in Christ. We have a new life principle. 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5:17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. We are to set our affections on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Because storing things on the earth is a great, great waste. Just this morning, I had a question about somebody who uh, um, was a billionaire, Paul Allen. Uh, he died, and I went to see when he died and all that stuff, about 2015 or something like that. And he died worth 20 or 30 billion. You know how much he left? 20 or 30 billion. The reason I went to there is somebody's renting his yacht out for a million and a half a week to be in Monaco so they can watch a car race. Okay? That's gone. All of that's gone for him. 
We are to set our affections on the things above. Now the next thing we know is we are citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. In Luke 20 there's an interesting statement. Nevertheless, Luke 10, 20, which ought to give us great hope. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in that your names are written in heaven. And then there's 1 Peter 1, 3-5 that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, if you want to have some fun, read that verse every day this week. And just think about it. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That means... The benefits of our salvation haven't been yet revealed. We can see a little bit, but not all of it. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 6.9, we are told that our Master is in heaven. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, we are told that our treasure is in heaven. Our treasure is not here. Our treasure is there. So what is there? Well, just a little bit of a partial list. Fellow believers are there. Our inheritance is there. Our citizenship is there. Our reward is there. In other words, heaven is our home. There's an old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's stated pretty well. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Yeah, it's not in the sky. It is where our home is. We are strangers, or as the Bible says, we are aliens in this temporary world. We are aliens. And we need to have that kind of mindset. We are part of a new order, a new community, a new fellowship. We possess new life principles. And we're just passing through this life until we get to the place where the complete heavenly reality becomes just that. And it will be a real place where we will actually be and we will be citizens, not aliens. Look, look at part of the prayer that Jesus gave in John 17, 24. He said, Father, this is the prayer of Christ. It's a cool prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. This is what Jesus prayed, that we would be with him. That's fun to think about. 
Jesus is praying to the Father to bring his home, to bring us to his home in heaven. What a tremendous hope. A non-believer doesn't have that hope. They live and hope that things work out in the next life with no real assurance that they will. In fact, as you look at all the religions in the world, one of the things that sets Christianity apart is the known hope of eternal life. And I don't mean, oh, I hope I win the lottery. It's the, it's the something that can be known. Hope is a real assurance. John 5, 1 John 5, 12 and 13 says this. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We don't have a guess so or a I hope so. Oh man, I'm wishing so type of belief. Now you think about the lack of comfort of billions of followers of false religions. A good example is a quote by Muhammad right before he died. He said this, By Allah, though I am an apostle of Allah, yet I do not know what Allah will do to me. That's the leader? We know that we have eternal life. That's why Christ came. We live in the heavenlies, heavenlies now. And we are guaranteed of eternal life with God. We need to let that sink in of how precious that is. And if you do not know that, let's sit down and talk it over. Because you can know that. That's why Christ came. Don't let a day go by until that question is settled that you know. Jesus wants us to be where he is. And he is there now preparing a place for us. And we are actually going to that place. Just as much as we're sitting in this place right now. Jesus spoke to this in John 14, 1-4. Where he said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go I, uh, to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, we'll get into more specifics starting next week. I know this was an introductory thing. We're going to go to Ezekiel. That'll be fun. And we're going to go to Revelation to get a glimpse of the throne of God. But to conclude this introduction, we need to view ourselves as pilgrims and strangers in this world looking for our final home whose builder and maker is God. 
a real place where we'll really go to live with Christ where we will be citizens. Let's rejoice because he has given us the blessings we have. But let us long, we need to long for the conclusion or the completion of those blessings in their true, complete form. Going back, go back and think about the prayer of Jesus. He actually prayed that all who knew him would spend eternity with him to see his glory. Not just, if you wake up with insomnia, go to that verse, read it, and just dwell on it, and you'll fall asleep really fast. And if you don't, so what? You're thinking about something really great. And I trust that by the time we are finished looking at what the Bible tells us about heaven, what it's like, what we'll do, what our relationships will be, what the interim state is, all that, it will impact us in a way that we really understand much more what Paul said when he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we just scratched the surface today, but there's so much there, so much to come. Teach us more in your word. Thank you for praying that you want to take us to be in heaven with you, that you have prepared a place for us, that where you are, we may be also. Help us to understand the fleeting nature of this world and really the the unimportance of gain here was just a vapor. Help us to really be able to grab onto that verse with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. Come back. We'll have more good stuff. Next week is really cool. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to go home and go through all these verses and find them out in my mind. Yeah. <laughs>